Good evening. You know, it's uh, been a tradition amongst Christians in different places over the years during the Easter season not to greet one another saying good evening, but by saying Christ is risen, <laughs> to which the appropriate response is? Yeah, well done, indeed. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody? Those who are utterly unfamiliar, C.S. Lewis was an Oxford don, a Cambridge professor, middle part of the 20th century. He died coincidentally on the same day John Kennedy died. Uh, his Chronicles of Narnia are either children's stories for adults or adult stories for children. I'm not sure which one. And those of you who have not read them yet, I envy you. You have the opportunity for the pleasure of reading them for the first time. Uh, I want you to start this evening with a bit from one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last of the stories, uh, The Last Battle. In it, uh, Aslan the Lion, who represents Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia, has rescued from their imprisonment in a stable a group of dwarfs. And although they are standing on the green grass under a blue sky and the clear light of day, they persist in believing that they are still locked up in the stable. So Aslan roars, and they say, you hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't be taken in. Then Aslan shakes his mane and a glorious feast appears. And the dwarfs begin eating it, rightly enough, but they persist in believing that they're only eating the kinds of things that they would find in a stable, some hay a piece of raw turnip, uh, a, a wilted cabbage leaf. And they raise golden goblets of rich, rich, I can say, rich red wine. I can say that. Rich red wine to their lips, all the while saying, imagine us drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we would sink to this. Then a food fight starts followed by a fist fight. And when it's all done, they say, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Their apparent inability to deal with reality wasn't quite as unreasonable as it sounds just in light of that story. You see, they had worshipped a false Aslan. And having been taken in once, they were determined not to be taken in again. Unfortunately, the same cynicism that protected them from humbug blinded them to reality. When was the last time you encountered something really, really hard to believe? Something that should not be so, and yet it's there, right in front of you. What made it so hard to believe? Were the reasons intellectual, or were they personal? 
Tonight we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24. Here, two of Jesus' disciples have a hard time dealing with reality for similar reasons. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. You can either find it on the Bible app, it'll be up on the screen in a minute, or if you want to, you can actually pull one of the Bibles out from underneath and look it up there. That very day, and by the way, this is the first Easter Sunday afternoon. Two of them are going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together for a moment.
God, our Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts and minds now would be acceptable in your sight. Please, I pray, pour your spirit out us, on us now and teach us according to your word. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The reality that the disciples couldn't come to grips with was Jesus, the risen Lord. And Luke tells this story to emphasize three things. First, the certainty of the resurrection. Second, the significance of the resurrection. And then last of all, why we often have such a hard time grasping it. Look again in verse 17. Jesus ran into two of his disciples. He tells us the name of one of them, but the only thing he tells us about both of them is that their faces were sad. Ever had somebody come up to you at the end of a hard day and say, are you all right? It happened to me not long ago. It had been a really busy, really chaotic day. I was tired. I guess it showed. And they came up to me and said, are you okay? And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really all right. What's going on here is actually a, a step up from that. The only other place in the New Testament where the Greek word that gets translated sad is used here is in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The word gloomy there is the same word that's translated sad here. Uh, in Jesus' day, if you were good, you, you, you fasted twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday. And you wanted to make sure that everybody that saw you knew that you were fasting. So, you didn't comb your hair, you didn't take a shower, you didn't put on good clothes, you would smear things on your faces so everybody would know that you were fasting and be impressed, right? The sadness on Cleopas's face and his buddies was no less visible than this, but theirs was genuine sadness, and for good reason. I'll explain. Back in the mid-20th century, a French writer named Jean-Paul Sartre, who wrote lots of books that were popular with Bohemian college students in the day. In one of his books, he compares life to going to the movies. You go to the movie, you're not there when it starts. So you have a hard time figuring out what it's about, what's really going on, who the characters are. Sometimes it's entertaining, sometimes it's sad, but it's never informative. And to make matters worse, you have to leave before it's over with to catch your bus to get home. And according to Sartre, this is life. We're born into a story that's already happening. We're given no help whatsoever in figuring it out. And we die before the story ends so we don't get to see. He said, our only hope 
in that kind of existence is to find something that entertains us and makes sense to us, something that we can enjoy until we die. It's not a pretty picture. But if there is no resurrection, if when we die, we're toast, he's right. But what if, what if we're going to live forever? Rollo May was a 20th century psychologist, wrote a book called My Quest for Beauty. He tells of a visit that he made to Greece one spring during the Easter season. And he wandered by accident into a Greek Orthodox Easter service. And when the priest said, Christ is risen, and everybody in the congregation said, he is risen indeed, he chimed in. In his own words, he says, suddenly, I was seized by a moment of spiritual reality. What would it mean for our world if indeed he was risen and death wasn't the end? For Rollo May, the resurrection of Christ was quite literally incredible. He could not believe it and did not believe it. He's not a Christian. Can't help but wonder how he would have responded to the news in Jerusalem on that first Easter Sunday morning. Look again in verse 19. When Jesus asks, <clears throat> what's this conversation that you're having as you walk along? You know, what are you guys talking about? They respond, beginning in verse 19, saying, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our country amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of these, those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but did not see him. And he precedes this comment by saying, Jesus, are you the only people in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about this? Remember, this just happened that morning. Are you the only people aren't aware of what's going on? Christ's resurrection was not a personal and private matter known only to a few people. This was news in Jerusalem public knowledge, and everybody was talking about it. If CNN had been around back then, Wolf Blitzer would be on every hour giving you updates about the ridiculous rumors that are coming out of Jerusalem. Even years after this, it's still being discussed and debated. Acts chapter 26, 25 years after the resurrection, Apostle Paul is on, his, on trial for his life 
before the Roman ruler Portius Festus and Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II was the great grandson of the Herod who was king when Jesus was born. Paul begins his defense by telling his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road and then goes on to tell the story of his crucifixion and resurrection. And when he's finished, Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. You are under the influence of the peculiar disillusionment that comes from having read too many books in the end. But in verse 26, Paul turns to Herod Agrippa and said, the king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not occurred in a corner. He was there. He knows what I'm talking about. And Herod doesn't say, I have no idea what in the world you're talking about. All he says is, you think you could persuade me to become a Christian that easily? The point that Paul is making in Acts 26 is the same point that Luke is making in chapter 24. The chief difficulty that the disciples had on the first Easter Sunday morning was not the fact of the resurrection. Did it happen? Yes, they were convinced. The thing that they had a hard time grasping was, what does this mean? And not getting what it meant made seeing Jesus harder. Think about it for just a minute. Luke 24, what's the first thing that jumps out at you about this story? For me, obvious question, why in the heck did they, didn't they recognize him? Cleopas and his buddy weren't amongst the 12 disciples, but they were disciples of Jesus and they knew very well what he looked at. Why didn't they recognize him? And over the years, they've had all sorts of answers suggested to this question. Some argue that Jesus was different than he before his crucifixion. His resurrected body was so different from his crucified body that there's no way in the world the disciples could have recognized him. I don't buy this. Remember in John chapter 20, when Jesus appears to all the disciples except for Thomas, and he says, there's no way in the world I'm going to believe this until I see him myself and I touch, I, I see the scars on his hands and I put my hand into his side. And when Jesus appears to him, he says, okay, see me, touch me. Do not dare not to dare. Do not be disbelieving, but believe. Thomas recognized Christ for the same reason the other disciples did, because he was the same one who had been crucified. So other people suggest there was something in Cleopas and his friend that made them blind, at least temporarily. It's suggested in verse 21. Cleopas said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, we hear that and we think, 
redeem Israel, save Israel from their sins. First century Jew, here's redeem Israel. It is get rid of the Romans, restore the Davidic kingship, just as is promised in the Old Testament. That was what they expected to see. So seeing what actually happened confused them. They were like the dwarfs in Lewis's tale. Did they believe in the Messiah? Yes. But they believed in a false Messiah, one who was coming to freedom from the Romans. And believing in the false one <laughs> made the real one harder to recognize. You remember Lewis's comment about the dwarfs at the beginning of that story? Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they will not be taken out. Part of the problem that Cleopas and his buddy had in recognizing Jesus was in their mind, but that wasn't all of it. A third suggestion for their blindness is that perhaps God himself prevented them from recognizing Jesus. This seems to be suggested in verses 15 and 16. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. If so, this is God's action. And the question is, why would God do this? Why would he make them blind, at least in the beginning, to who Christ is? Luke doesn't give any answer here to that question. But I'll suggest one, if I may. How would the conversation that the disciples had with Jesus have been different if they had recognized him immediately? Jesus! I mean, you're here? You, you died. What was it like? Did it hurt? Uh, did you see a bright light and go toward it? Where have you been for the last three days? Instead, Jesus opens the scripture with them. In verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning to himself. It's not just that Jesus took occasional passages out of the Old Testament and said, you know, this was about me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. You know, that's me. What he says is the story of the Old Testament, all of it, is about me. It's not a story about getting rid of the Romans. It's about God redeeming his people from their sins. And he does this through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And when they get it, at last, Luke says, their hearts burned within them. But even then, one more thing is needed to open their eyes. Beginning in verse 28. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. What's described here is not like what some of us celebrated a couple of weeks ago on Thursday before Easter when Adam led us in a, a Seder Passover. This is more like what we'll be doing here next Sunday when we have a potluck breakfast and a potluck dessert. It's just a communal gathering of God's people enjoying something to eat. It is in this that they recognize Christ. And then they go and tell the disciples. One last question I'd like to touch on. If you're Luke, why do you include this story in your gospel? Now, Luke makes it quite clear in Acts chapter 1, which is also his writing, uh, that Jesus was on earth for 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. So there are lots and lots of resurrection stories he could choose from. He only mentions three. This one, his appearance to the disciples, all of them later on in this chapter, his ascension into heaven, and this. Why include this one? I think it's because that uh, the problem that Cleopas and his buddy struggled with is actually a pretty common problem. Let me explain what I mean. I met my friend Steve Smalley the first time when he was a resident in radiation oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. As a radiation oncologist, he treats people with cancer with radiation. Steve is a wonderful Christian man, a fine husband and father. He believes in the gospel and follows Christ. But one day he told me, you know, Greg, I, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, I believe in prayer, I pray for my patients, I pray with my patients. But he said, I can always tell you when they come into my office who's going to be alive in five years and who will not. And he says, just once, I'd like to be wrong. It's not that Steve doesn't believe. He just doesn't see what he would like to see. Cleopas wanted a king. Steve wanted a miracle worker. Both of them were disappointed. And I admit, I am too, sometimes. I'm not suggesting that Gaza doesn't do miracles, quite the contrary, like healing cancer, but I am saying that in my limited experience, it doesn't happen very often. Thankfully, 
There is a significance to Christ's resurrection that's not touched on in this passage in Luke. Uh, I began this sermon with a reference to the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm going to end up with another one here at the end. Uh, in the silver chair, two children, Jill and Eustace, re rescue Prince Rillian of Narnia from his imprisonment by an evil witch. And when they come triumphantly back to the land of Narnia, they discover that their old friend, King Caspian, is dead. And they mourn his passing until Aslan appears and sweeps them away to his country where this happens. Aslan stopped and the children looked into the stream. And there on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream lay King Caspian, dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass. His long white beard swayed in it like water weed. And all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be if it was a single solid diamond. And Jill noticed that Eustace looked neither like a child crying nor like a boy crying and wanting to hide it, but like a grown-up crying. At least, that's the nearest she could get to it, but really, as she said, people don't seem to have any particular ages on that mountain. Son of Adam, said Aslan, go into that thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Eustace obeyed. The thorn was a foot long and sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pad towards Eustace. Must I, said Eustace. Yes, said Aslan. Then Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's pad. And there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all the redness that you have ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. At the same moment, the doleful music stopped, and the dead king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray and from gray to yellow and got shorter and vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smoothed, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed. And suddenly he leaped up and stood before them, a very young man or a boy, but Jill couldn't say which because of people having no particular ages in Aslan's country. Even in this world, of course, it's the stupidest children who are most childish and the stupidest grown-ups who are most grown-up. And he rushed to Aslan and flung his arms as far as they would go around the huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king. And Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. At last, Caspian turned to the others. He gave a great laugh of astonished joy. <laughs> Why, Eustace, he said. Eustace, so you did reach the end of the world after all. What about my second best sword that you broke on the sea serpent? 
Eustace made a step toward him with both hands held out, but then drew back with a startled expression. Uh, look here, I say, he stammered. I mean, it's all very well, but I, I mean, I mean, didn't you? Oh, don't be such an ass, said Caspian. But, said Eustace, looking at Aslan, hasn't he uh, died? Yes, said the lion in a very quiet voice. Almost Jill thought as if he were laughing. He has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. Do you understand Lewis's story? When Christ rose from the dead, he didn't just defeat death for himself. He defeated death for us, too. And because of that, our future will be different than it would have been otherwise. Ours will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where death is no more. As Job says in the Old Testament, I know that my Redeemer lives and will stand at the end upon the earth, and I will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Until then, Jesus gives us the same thing he gave to Cleopas and his friend. The scriptures and the daily administration of his grace to us in ordinary things to assure us that Christ is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are so blind to so many things even things that we know to be true and affirm as true, so often are foreign to the way we think about things, foreign to the way we experience things, foreign to the way we look at the world. I pray that you would open our eyes too, again, to the significance of what Christ himself has done for us, that we would not just understand it, that we would get it and live as we look forward to the hope that's ours. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.